Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. So here we are. We have to wait now. <laughs> NSL Double Talk, featuring Michael Griffo, PhD, and Jonathan Yeager, PhD. Their topic today is Classical Music 101. Michael is chairperson of the Music History Department at the Juilliard School, where he has taught since 1997. Educated at Yale, Juilliard, and Columbia with degrees in music theory, piano, and historical musicology, respectively, Griffel specializes in 19th century music history. Jonathan is a professor of music history at the Juilliard School. His courses range from classical music to American jazz and popular traditions. He has degrees from Indiana University, the University of Cincinnati, and Yale. We are so excited to welcome Michael and Jonathan to NSL Double Talk. So Michael, prior to your tenure as Juilliard Music History Department Chair, you taught at Hunter College. For yes, I did for 36 years, teaching every course from uh, Introduction to Music, Alias 101, which we actually use that number for, uh, right through uh, the most advanced master's degree classes. And then and since uh, Hunter is part of City University, I taught the doctoral courses at the City University Grad Center. So I really had a wide range of course material, but the course I taught most often was uh, Introduction to Music, 101, in fact, and I think I gave 27 sections of that over about a decade in the 1970s, with classes ranging from 35 people to 95 people. And uh, really, uh, to this day, now we're many decades past that, uh, I meet former students on the street, in the supermarket, on a bus, and they come over and say, didn't you teach music history at Hunter College? I said, yes. Well, I took music history with you. So it's, it's really nice. These people normally tell me that it made a difference in their lives. They came into the class not knowing much about music. They had to take some kind of art course, so they chose music, uh, literature, and history. And uh, they might have been a little bit afraid of what it would be like, but at the end of the course, they really were happy that they had some understanding of uh, how to listen to music and how to derive pleasure from it. What about your experience, John? Well, I've taught at several different universities and institutions of higher learning, places both where I've been a graduate student and where I, where I haven't been after, after my graduate studies. Uh, I was a graduate student at Indiana University at the University of Cincinnati. I taught for a little bit at the College of Staten Island, one of the CUNY schools, and of course now at Juilliard. And it's been, it's been a wonderful experience to teach all different types of students of all different types of levels, coming from all, all different kinds of backgrounds. Yes. You know, at Juilliard, we're dealing with people who are committed to music performance and composition, and they know what they would like to do with their lives. Some of the people in a liberal arts school are searching 
and exploring and not knowing exactly what they want to do. And so they, they take a course like this to fulfill a requirement and or out of curiosity. And what we need to do for them is show them that classical music is not frightening, it's not scary, it's not elitist, it is beautiful and it is joyful. And I think if a teacher does a good job with it and brings in a little bit of popular music, a little bit of jazz, a little bit of music from around the world, it invites more people to take interest and see that uh, almost any kind of music could interest them and please them and give them uh, a lifetime of, of increased pleasure. So uh, when I taught this, I used uh, maybe five or six different textbooks. We tried different things out. And uh, some textbooks began with Middle Ages, which is the, probably the earliest music we can teach meaningfully. And other textbooks began with A Midsummer Night's Dream from uh, Mendelssohn uh, with the wedding march in it. And people perhaps were more engaged with that than with music from the year 1150, which they didn't understand at all. So if you sometimes start with something more familiar and then move to something a little bit more foreign, you've engaged the people sooner and more forcefully. But people are really interested in music because music is a part of everybody's life. They just don't know what to do with it sometimes, and it's our job to help them feel comfortable with it, which really is very, very doable. I agree. I, th I think one of the most important things is to start with whatever people are familiar with. And I've found that the soundtrack to the Star Wars movies is really useful in that regard because John Williams is taking a lot from the romantic symphonic tradition, a lot from Richard Wagner, both in terms of the sound of the music and the way that he composes it. And that's a way in for a wide range of people especially from a wide range of generations, I think. Yeah, one of the big differences in these last uh, 49 years since I started teaching at Hunter is that uh, when you go to the concert hall, it is not surprising any longer to hear Star Wars or E.T. or the dance music from West Side Story. Uh, back in 1970, that would have been very, very unusual. There was much more of a, of a wall between classical music, alias art music, and music from Broadway, film, television. And I think that's changed a great deal now. And uh, I remember when Bernstein wrote The Mass, I guess it was around uh, the late 70s, he incorporated rock, he incorporated uh, chant, he incorporated so many things into what he called Mass in his effort to show that music is music and it's for everyone. And it doesn't know about race or religion or ethnicity. It just is beautiful for everybody. If you can understand it, then uh, you have a better chance to enjoy it. Let me ask you a, a tough question here. I think that one of the challenges of teaching common practice classical music, even just the enjoyment of it to people who have very little experience or knowledge of it, is that the music was written during an era when if you wanted to hear music, you had to either perform it yourself or you had to have somebody perform it for you. It assumed a live person in the room making the music. And I think as a result, it was just more common for regular middle class folk to have some experience playing instruments. 
I think that a lot of the music is very much written with the assumption that it would be performed by and heard by, especially heard by people who had perhaps had more hands-on experience literally making music. Now, of course, that's not the case. You can't go into any business establishment, I think, in the United States now without music being playing. You go into a shopping mall, there's music playing. I was just walking through the concourse at Rockefeller Center to have a cup of coffee. There's music playing. How do you address that as an instructor? How do you take a situation where Beethoven or Brahms or Bartok are writing music for an audience that has maybe played some piano, maybe played some violin, and introduce it to people who might have very little of that, for whom a musical instrument might well be a laptop or a turntable. What have you found effective in those situations? Well, I think everybody knows music at some level. Everybody can sing Happy Birthday. And if they can sing Happy Birthday, they've engaged in music. And what I do sometimes to bring laughter into the classroom is I play sad birthday for them. <laughs> and I just change the, the melody by lowering a few steps of the tune. So dum bum 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 becomes bum 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 bum. And everybody laughs and they understand that sad birthday is as real as happy birthday. That actually sounds like sad twinkle twinkle or sad alphabet to me. And you can do sad twinkle twinkle. You can do sad anything. And that way you come into the idea of major and minor, the modes or the keys that people use whether or not they know what a key is. And you explain what a key is. And then you sing or play at the piano a, a, a tune in the wrong rhythm. And they might giggle and laugh. These are tunes people know even if you use America the Beautiful or Take Me Out to the Ball Game. You know, if you turn Take Me Out to the Ball Game into a waltz, they might have the urge to get up and dance. But if you do it in the rhythm that uh, is, is customary, then they get a sense of the difference. So when I taught that course, and I haven't taught that in, in quite a while now, but when I taught it, I began with some rudiments of music Melody, harmony, rhythm, texture, dynamics, etc. Uh, range, register, things that uh, are the vocabulary of music. And I also would bring in some, some Indian music or some Japanese music to show that there are different scales and different modes. So they become a little bit more familiar with that. And from that you go on really to talk about the different worlds of music where music is made, why music is made, the functions of music. Music is for liturgy. Music is for ceremony. Music is for dance. Music is for drama. Music is for socializing, entertaining, for chamber music, yes. Then from there you talk about Beethoven and Brahms, and if you're going to talk about Beethoven, everybody knows da-da-da-dum, and you tell the silly little story about fate knocking at the door, and they might be amused, and then you go into something about Beethoven's life to make him an interesting character. It interests people that he had to fight for custody of his nephew. He fought against his sister-in-law. It interests people that he grew deaf not when he was 50, but when he was under 30 hearing started to, to recede. And uh, you talk about Napoleon 
and you and and he becomes an interesting figure. Or you talk about the tragic overture, and you say, why is it tragic? And then you talk about the fourth symphony and the last movement of it, which repeats a harmonic pattern. And then you play the harmonies at the piano and, and, and you ask them to sing along sometimes so that these people become of interest. They were just human beings. They were no different from anyone else as human beings, breathing and, 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 and eating and sleeping and, and having relationships. And that way, they're not so frightening anymore. They're not gods. They're just people. Absolutely not. I think pattern recognition is really important. That's, that's a lot of what you were talking about right now. You know, we look at a work of art, we know to look for certain types of patterns, whether it's um, just a di design or something, or maybe a pattern in the way the figures or the personas in the work of art are interacting with each other. Beethoven's Fifth, of course, with the four notes, and the ease with which the average listener can identify that motive popping up in all sorts of places, especially in the first movement, I think that's the type of pattern that you don't need to be a specialist to hear. And a harmonic pattern of the sort that you have in Brahms IV, that too, I think, is the sort of thing that if demonstrated on the piano for an audience of new listeners, could be pretty clear. I've found that one of the challenges with introducing this music to younger people today is that so much of the music they're immediately familiar with and that they're saturated with is very different in how it approaches musical elements. You were talking about that a minute ago with melody and harmony, texture, rhythm, and sound color I think is so important. So much of popular music nowadays is it's as harmonically static as ever. That's been largely true, I think, of a lot of American popular music for the past 50 years. It's much more melodically static, even. I mean, the range of a melodic line of the sort of thing you'll hear on a pop music station can often be quite narrow. But I think that in terms of timbre, in terms of sound color, that's where it's often quite rich. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of students are expecting. So they... They, there's a lot of repetition in things like harmony or melody, but there'll be enormous variety and change in the types of sounds that they're hearing and how present the overtones are or aren't. And they don't know what the overtone series is, mm -hmm. but that's definitely something they're experiencing and something you can really play with with audio technology. And I've had some success in the classroom where I've taken some songs on the radio and talked about how the music develops and what the patterns are to recognize in that type of music. You definitely have to start small. Um, I wouldn't hit anybody with Mahler 9 or Goethe Demerung right off the bat. <laughs> um, although if they're big Star Wars fans, maybe so. Who knows? But pattern recognition, I think, is a central element for listening, right? Unless you just want to listen without thinking about it, you know? I mean, that's another thing that I like to say, that you can listen emotionally or you can listen rationally. You can just let the music wash over you, which is what I think a lot of us do and what we like to do. But you can also use your brain, use your rational faculties. And I think that a really dynamic listening experience often involves the two of them working in tandem. And when people use their brains and listen rationally, as you say, they're proud of themselves when they understand something like a Bach motet. 
uh, they're very proud of themselves for understanding it, for getting it. It's a, it's a sense of achievement. They are their own teachers that way, and they give themselves an A for understanding, and, and they walk away very happy with that. But no, I wouldn't play Gutter Demrung, but maybe the ride from the Valkyries, ride of the sure. Valkyries from the Valkyr, something short, something they may have heard in a motion picture soundtrack, something you can explain easily as to what's going on on stage when that happens, something to make them imagine how they would set that if they were the uh, producer or the director of, of the uh, stage version of that. And uh, I think that that way they might even get interested in Wagner. And of course, they might be interested in him because you talk a little bit about his life and where he was coming from as a composer. But I think you're right that uh, sound is very important in music and texture of sound, whether one person singing or whether three are singing or whether 30 are singing, changes the nature of the music very much. And having a text is a crutch to understand as long as the text makes sense to people. So, uh, yeah, if you listen to a song on the hit parade or a song from a Schubert song cycle, they both have words, they both have meaning, they both have patterns. Uh, Schubert himself, who wrote 600 songs, has some that are very much like a popular song, repeating the same music and the same harmonic progression, stanza after stanza, and others keep changing all the time. So you might start with the easier ones for a 101 group and uh, then move to something more challenging. But you have to do it step by step. It's like studying dance or studying acting. You have to start slow and with easy steps, and then you move along as comfort level increases. But uh, I, I think having students, well, maybe you remember when you were in kindergarten or first grade, and a teacher might have played something and said, every time you hear this tune, bum, 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 raise your hand. And that's so much fun. <laughs> well, I don't think it's demeaning to take a group of 19-year-olds and do the same thing with them. And they enjoy that just as much as the little children. And then you talk about, well, you know, that tune comes back about four or five times in this piece by Mozart. And the reason we call the uh, piece a rondo is that something keeps coming back. And then other things come in between the recurrences of the main theme. But let's see if you can wait for the exact moment when that tune comes back and raise your hand. And so a Mozart rondo becomes a more advanced twinkle, twinkle, little star, and the fear level goes down. When you're dealing with medieval music, so much of it being uh, liturgical, being sacred, uh, then you talk about the role of religion in, in our lives in our lives, in your lives, in your grandparents' lives, and why music adorns the service. One thing Martin Luther was so good about was getting people to church by giving them wonderful music, because that's an attraction. I think since most people sing in the shower and uh, move their bodies in a rhythmic way, even when they're a year or two old, or, or babies even, music is a natural part of life. It doesn't mean that everyone can perform it, but uh, everyone can certainly listen and enjoy it very, very much. What do you say to people who 
say this sort of thing to you. Gosh, you know, Michael, I love ballet. I love modern dance. I love the theater. I like to go to art galleries. I like to see contemporary art. But with music and instrumental music especially, I just don't know what to look at. I never, I never know how to, what I'm supposed to be looking at. How do you answer that when people ask you that question? Well, the first thing to look at would be the instruments and the players of the instruments. And you talk about strings and you talk about woodwinds and you talk about brasses, you talk about percussion. You give examples. You show nowadays with the technology being so much better than when I started teaching, you show slides or a video of instruments in the orchestra and the sounds they make. And you look at how the string players are bowing their instruments, whether the bows move up and down at the same time in the same way, and what, what happens when they don't. You can look at the conductor, who might be addressing the string section. Uh, you, 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 again, you turn the individuals making this music into uh, interesting figures. How is it different to play a double bass from playing a cello? They're both pretty big. But you do one standing up, you do one sitting down, you make different sounds, you have different functions for the instruments. Uh, you talk about a clarinet and how it's put together and what it is able to do and why it's a good instrument to play the beginning of Rhapsody in Blue, whereas a flute would not sound too good doing Rhapsody in Blue. And, and you demonstrate it. If you're at a school like Juilliard, or at a good school uh, like Brooklyn College, uh, where there's a wonderful performance program, you ask students to bring their instruments in. And at Juilliard, I've had a harpist come in on occasion, because even the pianists and violinists and, and, and oboists don't know at all how sound is made on a harp. So that's something you look at. And then you do look at the conductor, and you say, what is that person really doing with those hands or that baton? Is this about expression? Is this about rhythm and meter? Is this uh, to get people to come in at the right point? Do they really need the conductor? So they look at that. So I think it begins with the personalities on uh, stage and, and in the orchestra pit. So uh, that's the beginning of looking at. When you go beyond looking at and you do listen, listening for, uh, you listen then for loud, very basic things, loud and soft and all the uh, gradations in between, fast and slow, sudden fast, becoming fast, sudden slow, becoming slow, accents, do you accentuate the right syllable? <laughs> in music, it's the same way. Do you do dum bum 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 bum? <laughs> and then you talk about how the composers think about these things and how they notate these things. And we live in an electronic age, so a lot of things are notated very, very differently and sometimes not notated at all. Uh, we, we, we in the 21st century have inherited so much music from the past that uh, we are drowning in different kinds of so-called classical music. And you might have to tell a class that really does like Mozart but doesn't know the first thing about Philip Glass, why Philip Glass is wonderful, why he's a genius, and what he's achieved. So uh, that's, that's, that's how you get into it. Well, let me ask a different question. Why attend concerts nowadays if everything is available 
on a phone or on a computer? Why, why pay money to go to the concert hall? I think about that sometimes. Well, some people don't. But the reason that some people do and the reason one should is that the live experience is different. The sound is different. Even the best equipment does not replicate the sound of the music bouncing off the walls and the ceiling. And there's also a feeling of sharing, sharing with the persons sitting near you. Even watching someone smile or grab their hand, one hand with the other and bob their head up and down or shriek is, is a, it's an experience. I mean, you, you can play tennis on a tennis court or watch uh, Wimbledon on television, and it's different. I mean, you're not going to get up and play your fiddle as an audience member, but you're going to be listening live to people playing live, and it is different. The atmosphere is so rich, so wonderful. You could say, I can watch a film on my computer, but I want to go to the movies for the same reason. It's right. bigger... It's more colorful, it's richer, and there are all these people around you sharing something with you. And I think it's, it's one way to also of not being a lonely person. Right. The communal aspect of, of it. You want community. You yeah. want to be part of, of something bigger. You're part of the world. And music is in this world, and you want to share it with other people. That's always something I love about a concert is when there's a a pregnant pause in the music or when there's silence. And if you're in a place like Carnegie Hall and everybody in the room is hanging on whatever's going to happen after that silence, that's one of the most special things about going to a concert. Yes, and I don't know if you're watching a musical video on, uh, on the TV or on the computer screen, whether you applaud at the end. Probably not. But in the theater. Maybe if you're with friends, you would. <laughs> but there as well, you're sharing being, in something with another being person. with other people. That's yeah. another way of sharing. Right. But when you're in the concert hall and the last notes are receding and they were done beautifully, nowadays, more, more than applause, people are standing up constantly, maybe too much, because we, <laughs> we no longer can differentiate the truly magnificent performance from an okay one, because everyone is so anxious to stand up and cheer and give that standing ovation. I think a lot of people just think that it's what you do nowadays. Yeah. I mean, that may be the price of continuing to have live entertainment when so much stuff is accessible on a smartphone or on a laptop, that your physical presence in the concert hall, you almost need to remind yourself of that by standing up afterwards. I think that's part of it, I think, indeed, because you're part of the event, you stand up, you're showing yourself, you're showing your enthusiasm, and you're having more fun that way. And in some cases, especially with, at least with some of the Broadway theaters, obviously a type of music we haven't really been talking about, but <laughs> some of the seats are pretty small, so... Yeah. It's nice to stand up and just stretch your legs after sitting for whatever for yeah, whatever it's been. We won't been. mention names of theaters or hurt their business, but sometimes <laughs> my legs are killing me during each act because I can't move them. They're, my knees are practically touching the, the back of the seats in front of me. But Broadway is another really thrilling experience. And uh, again, you can't get the sense of a show except in the live experience. And watching what's happening on that stage, the best of television uh, attempts cannot match 
the, the, the real-life show experience because there's much activity going on in all corners of the stage. And you can see the expression on a number of faces on stage, which you really can't do in, in, in any other way. And Broadway music is, is fabulous music. It's always been fabulous music, and it, it's representative of the times that the uh, composers and lyricists are, are living in. That's right. We live in more of a rock and hip-hop age now, and that's, that's into the Broadway scores, but they are sensational. They're wonderful. I teach Broadway. I teach old. I teach the golden age, really, of Broadway. I, I start with Showboat uh, and, and go up to sort of the producers. And yeah, we could sing the songs, we could hum the songs, we could watch a film. But why were these shows important? They all deal with uh, issues of, of life, issues of society. And whether it's age discrimination or sex discrimination or, or miscegenation or, or media hype, or, uh, there are things to learn from every show. And a lot of that music now is uh, performed by opera singers and by a symphony orchestras because it's good music. And even at Juilliard now, I am teaching a course on opera and Broadway. And the students, I think, are liking it very, very much. Yeah, I think that when teaching something to students, it's sometimes important to make a distinction between what's historically important and what you find personally beautiful and enjoyable, because they're not always exactly the same. I mean, there are some things out there that I would say are certainly historically important, but that would not necessarily align with my preferences of of course. What I would want to hear at any given moment. Yeah. No one can like everything. Right. So, to like everything is to like nothing and, on some level. Yeah. What I've always said is we don't, we don't have to ch we, don't, we have all of it. And what we can do is select from all of it. We select some of it. The some of it we really, really like. And uh, that way uh, beginners are less frightened. They don't have to pretend Right. They can be honest. And one thing I say even to the doctoral students at Juilliard, and that's the highest level at Juilliard, I say, is all of this important? In fact, is any of this important? Where Henry Purcell went to school, <laughs> you know, what Beethoven liked for dinner. <laughs> uh, and I say, well, uh, on some level, none of it's important. It won't affect uh, what they do in Washington, D.C. next week. It won't affect what's going on in, in Russia today. It won't affect medical advances too much. But I say on another level, and the reason you and I are here, is that everything's important. Everything's important. Why is doing a crossword puzzle important? <laughs> it doesn't achieve anything except enjoyment for the person doing it or frustration. It's important. You have to make your life meaningful and do more than if you were a bear or, or a mosquito. You, <laughs> you have to do a little bit more with the human mind. And uh, the more you try to understand things, the more opportunities you give yourself to say, I have lived a full and rich life. Music is one ingredient in making that life full. And I think everyone is capable of enjoying it and learning about it, all people. One thing I wanted to ask you, Michael, is where do you think concert life is going? If people are going to get out from behind their smartphones or their laptops and go to a concert hall, I think that 
the visual element is going to become increasingly important. We see the New York Philharmonic having the orchestra play the Star Wars soundtrack live or the underscoring live while the film is playing above their heads. And I think that type of thing is going to happen more and more. I would love to see a situation where the audiences could get physically closer to the stage. That's something I very much value. Anytime I'm in a hall that brings me closer to the performers, where you can look at the types of things that you're talking about, I think that matters a great deal. I sometimes advise people to go to Carnegie Hall and deliberately sit in the balcony, first of all, because they can save some money on the tickets, but also because you can really see everything happening on stage. If you've got the Berlin Philharmonic in town and you want to see all the wind players interacting with each other and whatever piece they're playing, you can see that more easily from the top than you can if you're down in the orchestra section. And, of course, you save money on seats. What do you think about that? What do you think about where the concert experience is going in the 21st century and these types of initiatives? And and what have you experienced personally Mm -hmm. recently? Well, I think your ideas are very, very good, John. Where is music going? Well, first of all, it's been going into smaller venues, nightclubs, schools. Professional music making is taking place in smaller places so that people are closer to it. You won't do an opera at Poisson Rouge, but you do have a piano recital or a song recital. And, And so music is going places. The Philharmonic for years has been going to a church in Harlem to come closer to the community. Uh, They play in the parks. The Met Opera does things in the parks in the summer so that people can go without paying anything and and hear the same high quality of music there. And uh, I do think the audiences are diminishing in size for paying live experiences. So I think you have to find ways of making it more financially affordable for the poor, whether that takes money from extremely rich benefactors or whether that takes governmental participation or whether that simply takes bringing the salaries of stars down a little bit so that they can reach more people. There will be ways for wise and intelligent people to make the live uh, opera, the live concert more affordable and more inviting to the average citizen. But I also think that uh, we have to increase the outreach and have artists go into more and more public and private schools, uh, perform for the little children at a pre-K school. Uh, And by perform, I mean maybe talk a little bit about a tune that they sing at home and how the tune is made and how it's put together and how funny it would sound if we just changed one element of it. And I think by, by starting young, you build your audience for the future. Public schools where I grew up in in New Jersey, we had music constantly, and it was listening, and it was also moving in a dance-like manner, and it was singing songs. Kookaburra sits on the old gum tree. Uh, And a lot of that has disappeared from our public school, and probably private school, too. But I think it's going to come back. I think There is more and more information uh, uh, emanating now about music as therapy, music as health enhancement, 
music as brain enhancement, and I don't think any of that is wrong. I think a lot of that needs more research, but will, will be shown to be be true. Uh, Plato wasn't such a silly guy, and he said music, along with phys ed, was something everybody absolutely needed to engage in, to be a healthy and full person. That goes back a few years, but he was pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing music as brain development right now with my two-year-old son, sure. where he can, I guess I might start bragging here. You should. <laughs> <laughs> he can sing the alphabet. He's almost learning to sing before he's even really learning to speak. He sings the alphabet. He sings all sorts of songs that we play for him. And you can recognize what he's hearing. And he's making connections among words on the basis of the melodies. There are a couple of songs where there will be a little melodic gesture that's the same. Um, the the da-da-da, the beginning of the, th the theme to Sesame Street, for example. Mm -hmm. And there's another song that has that same interval pattern over the major chord and he's made a connection between the two songs where he'll just sing one after the other and then in a different case the words were the same and on the basis of that he made the connection so I'm seeing mm -hmm. this up close and personal in a way that's really delightful and it's delightful for you and for and for him indeed indeed and that Sesame Street song starts with three notes and those are the same three notes that the Star Spangled Banner starts with. <laughs> That's true. So you make these connections, and then the music becomes something that the little boy carries with him. Well, Michael, great to talk with you in this setting. This is a bit different from talking to you in your office, but no less enjoyable. Absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful to chat with you no matter where we are, but here it was a little bit different. We talked about your little boy. We talked about music that we don't tend to teach so much, the 101. I mean, maybe we will again at some point, but right now not. And it was delightful. Thank you very much for joining me and being here. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.